Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Cargo of Bricks, part of the Reset Project brought to you by Slugger O'Toole and kindly supported by Ulster Bank. This week's guest is Siobhan O'Neill, who's Northern Ireland's mental health champion. I began by asking her, what have we learned from the onset of the virus back in February and March to where we are now, out of lockdown, but facing a second wave? Um, I think we've le- we've learned a lot of positive things. We've learned that we can adapt very, very quickly. We've learned that um, most of us behaved in a very normal way. Um, we were highly anxious. <laughs> and that is actually the normal stress response that you would expect during a global pandemic. Um, some of our behaviours were um, difficult to understand, but it, it, they resulted from that stress response that many of us experienced. So the stockpiling of food and toilet roll is an example of that, because when a person's feeling threatened, they, they want to keep themselves safe and make sure that all of those functions are served and they have enough food to eat. So we find that, that we we behaved in, in a way that you might expect, but we also find that innovation is possible, social agency is possible, communities can come together to protect the most vulnerable in a way that we never thought possible. And we also learned about the value of science and data in terms of guiding our pathway through this pandemic. So we, we have learned so much. Um, but as we face a second wave, there's so much that we now know that we didn't know. And there's so much more uncertainty, arguably, at this point as well. That's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you use the words community and agency together. Um, and also the thing that struck me was an unexpected level of public compliance with what political leaders were asking them to do. I mean, not, in my long experience of uh, Northern Irish politics, that's almost unrivaled, that willingness to cooperate with kind of orders from above. We tend to be a slightly anarchic, pulling apart society, but we did see some pulling together. What? How would you account for that? Okay, well, essentially, we are pack animals. We are animals and we have animals' brains. And we're always looking to the leader of the pack to kind of set the tone. And we're taking cues all the time from from our leaders um, regarding how safe our environment is and how afraid we need to be and what we need to do in order to to stay safe there. So there was a period at the start of this. Now, not at the very, very start, but after we had settled into a lockdown and restrictions where the two leaders were appearing there in the weekly briefings and giving more or less similar messages to the people and they were very very clear messages we knew exactly what we had to do and we need to we we knew exactly what that would achieve and this was about protecting vulnerable people and protecting our health service so I think those were very very clear but as I said I think when we're entering this sort of second period of COVID maybe a second wave there um, there is so much more uncertainty out there and again we would need that strong leadership and I think we are starting to see it but strong leadership and clear messages so everybody knows exactly what they have to do whether they understand it is actually irrelevant the, the basis behind it we really need to trust our leaders right now um, and that's the, the best chance we have at getting widespread adherence which is going to reduce the, the transmission of the virus. I mean, clearly that served us well in terms of the first part, but the the instructions for the first part of this uh, emergency were rather clear and also had a lot of emphasis coming from 
you know, TV pictures from Northern Italy showing a very well-resourced Northern Italian health service being overrun, the distress and doctors and nurses having to deal with patients were dying in ways that they just didn't understand and couldn't really cope with. So the negative incentives were there. Uh, and but, but as you say, we're moving into, an, a, a, you know, a, a, a situation where almost everything is unknown um, where we are in terms of the virus. So just talk us through some of those um, known unknowns that, that, that we're currently facing. Well, I think at the start of the pandemic, uh, lots of people viewed this as a deadly virus that would take the lives of many people, including older people, but but not exclusively, um, and that we were waiting for a vaccine for this virus and that that was coming very quickly. Um, the the other thing now that we're starting to learn is that this is a virus that could possibly mutate, um, that there are um, irregularities in terms of the tests for this virus, and we're unclear about whether having had the virus offered immunity. So there's a lot of things that we took for granted at the start that actually are quite unclear. And there is a lot more scepticism and questioning um, right now around the, the the measures that we need to adopt to ensure that lots of people don't die from this virus. So I think that has shifted. Um, and there are dissenting voices out there who are getting a, a lot of airtime and people are, are listening to those. And I think those are the things that's causing a bit more turbulence right now. So the you know the, the the psychological term for this kind of breaking up, if you like, of a the, almost that the, we had a beneficial herd mentality in the very first part. Now we're seeing the herds all beginning to kind of break up. When we were talking before, you used this this term, um, which ought to be pretty familiar to most of us who report in Northern, Northern Irish politics, because it seems to be to me to be a permanent feature cognitive dissonance where, where, you know, people are almost acting against good sense or, or good authority, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, just to explain that in a bit more detail, um, the restrictions that, that we've been asked to follow are actually quite harsh and difficult for many, many of us to adhere to, particularly in the long term. So a couple of weeks, we could stay away from our loved ones. But even in that very early period, a, a lot of people were unable, for whatever reason, to follow the guidance. And of course, whenever our behaviour um, is going against something like that, we need we need an argument, we need a rationale, we need a way of explaining it to ourselves, because we all want to see yourselves as rational, logical, compassionate human beings who want to help other people. So we we need to get those stories straight. And if our desire in order to maintain our own social connections or to maintain our own integrity, if, if we need to break those regulations or if we feel that we need to do that, then we need a story to explain that. So therefore, we we hone in on those stories that make sense in that context. So the stories that allow us to explain our own behaviour are the stories that we will subscribe to. And there are more and more of those such stories out there and more people who are questioning the regulations. So this allows people who feel that they they just can't follow them for whatever reason. This gives them an out um, and people latch on to those narratives as a way of condoning their own behaviour, which they might otherwise see themselves as to be inappropriate behaviour or behaviour that would put others at risk. And, and, and there also seems to be to be something here around the fact that actually the story has to shift from one moment to the next. 
that conventionally would be t- seized upon by, say, political journalists as a as a reason not to believe a politician because, hey, they've changed their mind. You know, deeper philosophers of po- politics say, actually, we need our politicians to be hypocritical, as uh, as um, Keynes once famously said, famously said, when the facts change, I change my mind. But that's problematic in terms of, you know, maintaining a coherence down through a whole society. Well, well, this is the, the difficulty. The facts are changing all the time. We're constantly learning more about this virus and about the way that it's transmitted. And also we're learning more about the implications of those um, those measures and those restrictions on people's mental health and what that means. And there are further implications and those are economic implications that we also need to know more about and think through. So at the start of the pandemic, we had um, information about vi- a virus and epidemiological information about transmission. Now we have all of these other types of information that we need to weigh up whenever our leaders are trying to make decisions about about what to do going forward. You know, and any one person will not be an expert in all of those areas. So, again, this is about trusting experts, knowing that those experts that we are putting our trust in are basing their decisions on the evidence rather than opinions that are um, that, that that they will they will come up with to explain their own behavior, if you know what I mean. So we need to we need to go back to the science and the data with all of this, but that actually includes mental health data at this stage as well. And it's interesting. One of the things that seems to me there's been a tendency in the public discourse to compartmentalize some of these things to say epidemiology at the moment it that's the rock star of all medical scientists, and we really ought to be listening to them and, and no other. And then you know where it breaks into polarization all, almost from the very beginning has been this tension between economics and uh, epidemiology but really mental health is something that conjoins both in terms of the stresses of dealing with the the epidemic but also the potential loss of economic opportunity going forward the, those are Absolutely. Good points. We also have behavioural science, which hasn't actually become part of the conversation in Northern Ireland. So we're telling people to wear a mask, but how do we make sure that they can do that? How do we make that behaviour easier for people? So behaviour science needs to be up there with all of these rock stars as well, because that's what's going to um, determine whether or not the advice from the epidemiologist is actually considered. But but turning to mental health, I mean, the, the, the ability to regulate in the face of stress is absolutely absolutely crucial and it's crucial that we can stay calm and and um, operate in a very calm logical way in the face of this pandemic so we, we need to look after our mental health and also stress does cause mental illness and it exacerbates existing mental illness and that's the concern that we have right now that there's the stress of the virus and the deaths and the stress of all the talk of the virus and the hysteria that's right out there. But there's also the stress of the the restrictions and how people are coping with those restrictions. So we, we need to be cognizant of all of those things um, and take consideration of them whenever we're planning the, the restrictions and how to act moving forward. I mean, one of the most obvious things uh, to us as Irish people, you know, the centrality of the funeral is something that is it's it's common right across the island and it's very it's a it's a common thing that we have between traditional catholic and traditional protestant communities particularly in rural areas and yet you know i mean what's the sort of likely effect of those restrictions you know going on for you know 
some undefined time to come? Well, this is where um, an understanding of the cultural context of the behaviour is just so crucially important. It is actually impossible and deeply inappropriate to try and curtail those natural um, processes that that happen. We need to recreate them in some way and and make sure that we can do that in a safe way. So at funerals, people will want to console one another. So we need to ensure that we can allow them to do that in some sort of safe way whatever that looks like, and make it as safe as possible. Um, And we also need to make sure that those rituals of wakes and funerals, that we have a way of recreating those at some point, if we're not able to do them um, at at the current time, that we have a way of memorialising, because it's so important, um, a part of the grieving process, which makes sure that the person can return to a state of mental well-being after a death or a loss. It's not going to happen straight away, but those rituals are actually really, really important to that process. So if we want a healthy population at the end of this, we need to be realistic in terms of what we expect and tell people how they can how, how they can manage this process at, at this time. And still be genuine, living, breathing human beings. I think that's a really key point. And it leads me on to something that Tony Gallagher said in last week's podcast, uh, which is there's a real danger here of a polarization or a failing to maintain understanding between two key demographics. The elderly who are clearly face on the front line of the health uh, emergency and younger people who are the ones who are most likely to pay economically, not just now and this year, but going onward. And, you know, some of the controversy around the Holy Land in, in Belfast. We've seen how the GAA is... Um, you know, had to close down nationally just because of the behaviour of some younger fans um, at club matches. So um, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that in such a way so that we're successful in trying to get engage, engage young people to change their behaviours? Um, and what are we doing wrong right now? Well, I think it's really important to remember that that young people have never, ever responded to lectures about the effects of risk-taking behaviour and the long-term consequences for them. That just simply doesn't work. It's not going to work for COVID restrictions and it hasn't worked for alcohol and drugs and everything else. So we need to be growing up about that fact. The adolescent brain is just simply not equipped to think that far in the future. By nature, they are impulsive, they are risk-takers, and we need to acknowledge that whenever we're setting out guidance for our young people we need to allow them to to mix socially it's so crucial and for for young people children and adolescents this stuff is time critical it can't be replaced in five years from now that that first year that transition to university is is a transition that they need to go through and then we'll never be able to recreate that so we have to try and allow these things to happen in the safest way possible and that is where we need a meeting of minds between behavior scientists mental health experts and epidemiologists to to work out a way of allowing our young people to mix socially so that we can protect their mental health, but also so that we can be realistic and we don't see scenes like illicit parties where the virus is transmitted in a completely uncontrolled way. Um, But, you know, what the difficulty is here that I've said at the start, we need clear messaging, you know, stay at home, stay save lives. We know what we're doing. And this is actually much more nuanced than that. So we need leadership. 
We need leadership within those organizations. We need the pack leaders and all of those animal communities. And that's essentially what we are. We're animals. We need the pack leaders to, to develop solutions and to be role models themselves of the behavior that we're looking for and to step up and tell us what we don't want to obviously call it when, whenever people do things that, that are going against the restrictions, but actually give people alternatives allow people um, those opportunities to mix and socialise, tell them what they should be doing. I, I read in The Economist last week, and I think one of its leaders, that um, it talked about British Columbia and that they had taken a particularly um, decentralised view of how these regulations should be implemented. They were very keen on organisations, not not just at the sort of national level of GAA, but you know at club level as well, about... Um, them developing their own procedures rather than waiting for the word to come down from on high, that they would develop the, the procedures that were culturally appropriate for their organization in that place. And I think that speaks directly to this idea of pack leaders. Pack leaders as in, you know, at every single level, which is national, regional, uh, community-based, and actually when it comes down to club or team-based, um, even supporter-level-based. We've seen, we've seen leadership in the past from other codes, from the actual supporters themselves. Um, so to some extent, this leader, this this idea of leadership isn't simply an abstraction that comes down from on high. It's something that kind of really has to come from the bottom up. It does. We need to be able to translate the guidance that we're given into our individual circumstances. So there may well have been a way to have... Um, Gaelic football matches and to allow spectators in a very safe way. I mean, the concern that I would have now is that there's there's no outlet for wh- where are the spectators going to go? Where are those young people going to go and celebrate and meet their friends? And you know, so they they will do it. They they will just break the the guidance in a really fr- flagrant way that means that the virus is actually more likely to be transmitted as a result. And this is where behavioural scientists really really need to come in. Um, and no, now there is just so much uncertainty. We need to take the spirit of the guidance and make sure that we have leadership in applying the spirit of the guidance as well as the actual guidelines that are given. It's it's a really, really difficult and tricky area. I think what's interesting about the way the conversation's gone is that we've talked a lot about what it takes to maintain mental health. And often when you say the term mental health, people immediately mentally translate that into illness. Um but it's illness, really, that we're trying to avoid uh, in, when we're talking about policymaking. Um, what are some of the key things you think that people can, you know, where is their agency around their own lives? And what kind of things do you think they can do to maintain uh, mental health in these constrained circumstances? So our mental health basically is is about how we respond to stress and whether we can cope with stress or whether we have an overwhelming stress or like a trauma that we can't cope with or a chronic stress that actually um, wears down our system so much that we become mentally ill. And our bodies respond in a particular way to stress because we, at the end of the day, we have animal brains and we have that fight or flight response. So our our ability to self-regulate, to cope in, in the face of stress, to get ourselves back into a position where we can problem solve, that is absolutely crucial. Um, and a lot of this is about a biological response. So I think if we do nothing else, we need to attend to our physical health and make sure that our bodies are equipped to cope with stress. And that means that we need to look at the, the diet that we have to make sure that we're 
well fed, but we're not just eating sugary things that give us loads of energy that, you know, so we need to think about our diet, we need to think about um, our levels of physical activity, you know, and if we're in a very, very stressed state, physical activity can help with that and get rid of that and bring us back into a position where we can regulate and problem solve, it can also distract us, so physical activity is crucial. We need to look at the things that we're doing in order to cope with stress as well, I mean, a lot of us will, will open a bottle of wine, you know, and have it last, and that will work straight away, and, you know, we've been doing a lot of that let's face it through the first three months four months of the pandemic but over time that's actually going to to create that sort of inverse effect in the brain where we get that more anxious the next day and we need to take it every day and before we know it we've got a problem so we've got to just be really really careful about what we're doing to manage stress another thing that we do to manage stress is obsessively look for information that either confirms or disproves our own our own behaviors our own theories about covid so immersing yourself at twitter and watching all those arguments that unfold and watching what's happening in the US with Trump and how he's dealing with his dose of coronavirus. You know, these things actually will serve to create more stress. They keep us in that very stressed state, um, which is which is not a good position from which to problem solve because you're the animal that, that's being attacked and you can't problem solve in that state. That's really, those are really key points, I think. And, you know, uh, just to top that out, I would also say, that physiologically, if you look after your own physical health, it has knock-on uh, effects for your mental health, but it also has a really powerful effect on your perhaps ability to fight the virus if and when you're unfortunate enough to get it. I think this idea that we can all avoid it interminably is is probably one of those fantasies that w- may come true or not, because it's very unlikely that 100% of any population is ever going to, you know, as the as the infection rate goes up, you know, the chances of getting to other people drop because there's all this dead space that they can't get through. Yeah, but, but people have talked about this virus as, as like a flu. And I had the flu a couple of years ago. The flu is a very, very serious illness. You know, yeah. that is not, you know, it's not to be minimized in any way. It's really, really compromising. It can stop you from working and being productive for months. So um, let, let's be realistic about even the mildest versions of this this virus. Uh, and they're they're in I mean, often a very bad cold. People will talk about it being the flu, and it's nothing of the sort. Um, so what I wanted to—I mean—that is a really good outline of where um, I think um, individuals might be able to make a difference in their own lives. What about policymakers? What should they be thinking as as we go into this second wave in terms of mental health? I, I think we need to, to have a number of different expert groups at the table whenever decisions about regulations and restrictions are being made. Um, I think we do certainly need the, the healthcare experts and the um, virologists and epidemiologists. They're, they're crucial. We also need the behavioural science experts so that we can create guidelines that people are likely to follow and minimise the risk. We need mental health experts who have been tracking the effects of the restrictions on behaviours and those need to be looked at in various different population groups you know so restrictions in children and young people are really really damaging for lifelong mental health restrictions for people in their middle age arguably wearing a mask and things like that aren't going to affect their mental health too much but we do need to have um we we do need to have those exceptions for people who have trauma related conditions which means they can't wear a mask so all of that needs to be thought through we also need economic experts at the table who will be able to tell us what this translates to in terms of loss of livelihood because 
because we know that there are significant mental health impacts of that. And there's also significant impacts of um, the, the economic effects that will impact on whether we're able to conduct the behaviours. So if we have people in zero hour hours contracts or people who are working in the black economy who aren't able to access those um, the 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 measures that the government have introduced to protect people, then they're going to break the guidance for those reasons. So we need to have all of these groups together sitting, talking about what sort of restrictions we need. And we need to have a population that, that can trust the leaders that know that we voted these people in there and they do represent us and they have our best interests at heart. Um, and I think we, we th- that sort of pack mentality and trust in the leadership and trust in the experts is, is fundamental. Yeah, and I think your point is well made that where there's unso- uncertainty, then trust in institutions is absolutely critical. And we've seen this variance, you know, throughout, you mentioned New Zealand's prime minister, um, but, you know, most of the Scandinavian countries, even though some of them are taking quite divergent um, policy tracks on it, I think the high levels of trust in those countries has allowed the populations to uh, comply to the absolute maximum. Although I noticed um, somebody shared something, I think he was a special advisor to the Minister of Finance in the Republic, so he's clearly got an interest in this, but he shared um, a copy of the front page of Berlinske, um newspaper in Denmark, basically praising the strategic framework that the Irish government's brought out. And it strikes me, and I've said this in in pieces on Slugger, that I think the utility of that, whatever its faults are, the utility of it is that it creates a narrative framework that people may not understand at the beginning, but through repeated use and going up and down through the, these levels, it, it, it creates a kind of stability in the cognitive framework that people have for this this emergency. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you have any particular thoughts on that, but or just generally, this need to have some stability in in the frames through which people see this emergency? Well, I mean, those sort of frameworks are really, really helpful because we know exactly where we are. The idea is that we would know exactly where we are and we would know when then governments move between the different levels. So that can be very, very helpful. Of course, we do need to realise that there must be, um, those must be flexible enough to allow little tweaks here and there based on our current understanding of how the virus is being transmitted and the nature of the virus itself and know that just because it's in that framework there may be particular groups that that does apply to and other groups that it might not apply to because the harms are greater you know and I think this is the difficulty it needs to be loose enough to allow for that and yet rigid enough so that people can interpret where they are right now which allows them then to move on and focus on their own goals so we need to understand what's happening in our society in our environment in our community and then we can see where we fit in there and how we can continue Continue then to do what we do and the things that are important to us and know how that then contributes to the bigger picture. So two final thoughts before we finish. One thought would be around our children and young people. We need to recognise, we need to have a brain development perspective on this and recognise that those early years are time critical and they can't be replaced. And there's lots of um, interactions and relationships that are built in that time that will have lifelong implications for mental health. So we must be very, very, very cautious when it comes to suggestions about closing down schools or closing down childcare early year settings. Those allow us to have um, influence there at, at a stage 
stage and that that time really can't be bought or we don't think it can be bought later so that that's crucial and there's also an issue about how we talk to and about our older population we're describing them now as vulnerable they're actually many of them are very resilient they want to have agency they want to be able to make decisions for themselves about their own level of risk so we can't patronize that group either we need to provide information about the virus from trusted sources and we need to respect that the public will make up their own minds cargo of bricks is brought to you by the reset project in partnership with ulster bank bringing you innovative ideas to help aid northern ireland's economic recovery make sure you catch every edition by hitting the subscribe button wherever you get your quality podcasts